Well, welcome. Thanks for coming tonight. Okay, we're we're in we're in Jude, the book of Jude, all the way, pretty much to the back of the New Testament, and um, this is our our fifth lesson tonight in this small epistle, this small letter. And remember, this this letter is dealing with people who uh, come against the church, not from without. Not people outside the church, but actually people from within the church. There's a battle going on within the church. And it comes from those who, who profess to know the truth, know Christ. But um, it's always been that way, and it will always be this way. Until the Lord returns anyway. Because the assaults on the truth a lot of times come from within. And that's what Jude says. He says that certain people have crept into this fellowship, this church... And he's warning them about them, and he's reminding them of certain things. And one of the things is that this assault comes from different, different people, different angles. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Let no one deceive you in any way, Paul writes, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So there's going to be a rebellion against the truth, and we're seeing that, right? Uh, around the world, not just in the United States, around the world. And, and Jesus predicted that even at the end of the age that there would be an um, apostasy, a falling away from the true faith. And so, so far we looked at the purpose that he had in writing this. And we said, first of all, he was going to expose false teachers. And he wanted to encourage the believers to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. As a Christian, it's not something that we can just take for granted. We have to engage. We have to fight this uh, war <laughs> that we're involved in over the truth. And so that was the purpose. But then we said, well, what was the problem here? Because notice, remember in verse 3, he wanted to talk to them, Jude 3, about the common faith, the common salvation. But then he says, but I found it necessary <laughs> to, to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith. So something came across Jude's desk and he said, okay, I can't write about this anymore. There's a more pressing issue. Well, well, what was it? And we, we found out that these people have crept in unnoticed. They were actually people who were being embraced by the church, and yet they were undermining the truth that was there in the faith. And so last week, or two weeks ago actually, we started this message on the proof of his claim. He talked about this problem that occurred but then he also said, well, here's my proof. I'm going to give you some illustrations. And so the text that we want to look at tonight is verses 5 through 7. And hopefully we'll get through all this. We got through verse 5 two weeks ago. But it says this in Jude chapter, chapter or verse 5. <laughs> There's only one chapter. Um, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And we went over all that last week, or two weeks ago. And we basically talked about how that was dealing with the Israeli apostates, those who had uh, fallen away, those who weren't doing the right thing, who were still part of Israel, but they were unbelievers. And uh, we talked about that in, in detail. And so you can listen to that on... Uh, two weeks ago that message but tonight we're going to pick up with verse 6 because it talks about 
this angelic apostates. So you have, out of the nation of Israel, you have certain people that rebelled against God. Well, even among the supernatural realm of angels that God created, you have certain angels who are known as fallen angels, right? We know them as demons. And these are angels who rebelled against God. And so Jude gives us these three illustrations as a sign to the church Look, if, if these people are going to creep into your church and you're going to embrace them, you better be careful because they're going to come under judgment. And just to remind you, here's the kind of judgment <laughs> that they're going to come under. When the Israel, Israelis apostatized, here's what happened. And now he moves on to these angels. And so he's talking about angels who kind of didn't do what God wanted them to do. And he gives these three illustrations. And then hopefully we'll get to the last one, the Gentile apostates, which deals with Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll see a tie between the angelic apostates and the, the, those in Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll see there's a, there's a commonality there. And so this is a, a warning that Jude is making. Remember, he's talking not to non-believers. He's talking to Christians in this letter. And he, he's making this warning very clear. And his warning is, you know what? There is a hell. It is forever. It's burning in horrific torment. And you will go there forever if you defect from the faith. If you, if you refuse the way of Christ. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. Uh, it's better you never heard the gospel than to hear it and disobey it. Um, it's better you were never taught the word of God than to have been taught it and reject it or walk away from it. In, in, in both Peter's and Jude's letters, there's a reference um, about people that are familiar with that. So this, this idea of this, this proof of his claim, he says in verse six, 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that of the great day and so in verse six he moves on from these these um, israeli apostates and he says now i'm going to give you another illustration and this illustration has to do with angels and this is kind of a difficult passage and we're going to look at a couple different passages to try to bring it all together and hopefully we'll get it right but <clears throat> people have different ideas on this, just, just so you know. But I want to give you three things here. First of all, I want to look at the, the description of these angels. What, what is Jude referring to? And the angels. What angels? Well, first of all, he talks about their position. He talks about their positions. He says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. See it there? They didn't... They didn't God granted to them a certain position of authority as he does with all angels but they forsook that um, their original position they walked away from it that word position of authority or some some translations may say domain or dominion or whatever it's the same word it's, it's the word arche in in in, in the original language a r c h e we get the word in the Catholic Church, the arch, what, bishop, okay? The word simply means to rule. It means uh, an area of principality. 
And so he, he's pointing out here their original position that was given to them by none other than God who created them. The Bible says that concerning these angels, there's an illustration here for believers to look at. Jude wants these believers to see the example of these angels. And it says there they didn't keep their own position or their own authority. Uh, the Bible says what they do, they left it. They didn't keep it. God told them to go somewhere and do something, and they said, no, we're going to do something else. They left their original position of authority. And it, it's when you study angelology and angels throughout the text of Scripture, you realize that God gave to his angels that he created, he designed, he created them, unlike man, because they're spirit beings, right? We're, we're made of flesh and bones. Angels are not. They're spirit beings. But he created them. He designed them. And he gave to them all kinds of uh, positions of, of rulership. <clears throat> you could say positions of authority, um, responsibility. And he did that to the whole angelic host. And so you could honestly say there are ranks of angels. There's, there's certain responsibilities. They all have certain jobs. There are certain rulership jobs that they have. He gave them all kinds of different, you know, an angel who doesn't just sit in heaven and pluck a harp on a, on, a, on a cloud. God has a purpose for him, just like he has a purpose for us. And so some angels, it says by this text, a few angels, according to this verse, didn't do what God told them to do. Didn't do what God assigned them to do. They left that position, it says. They did not keep it. And, and by the way, the language here indicates that something caused them not to keep what God wanted them to do. Something caused them to depart. Something caused them to kind of go off the path that the Lord wanted them to be on. And when you stop and you ask, well, what was it? It's, it's, not, a, it's not a process here. The idea is not like, oh, just gradually over time, they just kind of fell away. No, it was a very decisive act on their part. It came to a point in time and they said, you know what, God, we're not going to do what you want us to do. We're, we're making a volitional decision and we're going to group together and we're going to do this instead. We're going to leave the position of authority that you gave us and we're going to do something else. Whenever you do that with the Lord, what do we call that? <laughs> Sin, right? I mean, when God tells you to do something and you don't do it, the Bible calls that sin. Well, here is where these angels <clears throat> sinned. <clears throat> and, you know, they made a decision to sin against the God who created them. And you know what? When you think about that, it really teaches us something. It teaches us really that, that sin always, it always, mark my words, results in a loss of authority and a loss of position. You never just sin and there's no consequences. I think we all realize that. You don't get away with it. There's a loss of sin, or there's a loss of authority, and there's a loss of position. And that was true of these angels. And it's also true of any believer. If you're a believer here tonight, and you're sinning willfully before God, and that's just part of your life, and you say, ah, all my sins are forgiven, you know what? You're going to lose authority, and you're going to lose your position. Maybe it's a position in ministry. Maybe it's a position of influence. Yeah, you may be saved in the end, but you don't sin before a holy God without consequence. If we continue in the practice of sin, 
You're going to lose your effectiveness. You're going to lose, as a believer, your ability to minister. You're going to be compromised. Well, not only to their original position, but look at their original place. Look at what it says here in the text. It says in verse 7, it says that um, just as, or, 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 or verse 6, it says, but they left, but left their proper, their proper uh, dwelling. In the ESV, it says that. And so here's this word, this little word, but, and when in Scripture, whenever you see B-U-T, it's usually a word of contrast, right? It's, it's saying something here, but, and then it gives like an extreme contrast in the other direction. And here's what it's saying. It says these angels didn't stay with their original position of authority that God gave them, but what did they do? They left their proper dwelling. Um, they abandoned their abode that God gave them. They abandoned their responsibilities. And that little word, but, points that out. It's a word of great contrast. Well, what was their proper place? What was their proper place before this? Um, what was the place that they abandoned? What was the place that they left? It, well, clearly, it was none other than heaven. And there's a tremendous contrast there between heaven where God wanted them to stay and be responsible and do what God told them to do, but they went in an entirely different direction. And you know what? That was their sin. That was this angel's sin. Their sin was the sin of preferring earth, the sin of preferring earth's pleasures and earth's responsibilities to what God gave them. They said, you know what, God, we know that you have this responsibility in heaven for us, but we want to do what they're doing down there. And so they forsook it. These angels made a decision that they're going to leave heaven and they're going to leave their responsibility that God gave them in their job description with the Father. They're going to leave it for what? What are they going to do? They're going to come down to earth. Well, what in the world would they want to come down to earth for? Why would they want to come down here? According to the scriptures we're going to look at tonight, and we'll see it in a moment here, they came down to experience what they saw on earth as sensual pleasure. Um, which they weren't designed to experience. They're spiritual beings. They're not fleshly beings. But they came down to do it anyway. Because angels are spirits, right? We know that. Um, but remember, they can appear in bodily substance. We see that throughout the scripture. Um, remember, uh, uh, back in, in, in the Old Testament, there's angels that appeared and they went into the hot, uh, Lot's house and they ate and they did all these things. So they can appear in bodily substance, but they're, they're basically spiritual beings. They're not fleshly like we are. Um, but these, these spirit beings decided, they made a volitional, volitional decision, really, to sin against God's purpose for them and God's responsibility for them and the responsibility that he laid upon them. And what did they do? They made this decision and they left heaven and, according to the Bible, they got into all kinds of problems. All kinds of, of problems that we're going to see tonight. And so, 
the third description here of these angels is that it, it describes their, in relationship to their practice. What was their sinful practice? What, what caused this problem? Well, first of all, look at what he says in verse 7. He compares them, these angels, he compares them to who? Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, um, they left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then it says, just as um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sinful practices were basically, they are, they are um, compared. These angels, when you look at this text, look very carefully at it because I don't want you to misunderstand. These angels in their sin are compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what verse 7 basically says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, who, what's it referring to there? Just as what? That's referring to the angels back in verse 6. Just as these angels, just as, just as these angels, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, they are just as Sodom and Gomorrah. They're compared to the wickedness of those cities. And so the second thing I want you to notice here is they're condemned for immorality. And we're going to discuss this, so just be patient with me. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, it says in the ESV, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. Um, some of the translations misrepresent that verse. Probably the best translation is not even the ESV. It's probably the NASB, the New American Standard Version. Because it says this, it says, just as Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, that's, that's the New American Standard. So let's use that translation, because it's a little more literal to the original language. So when it says there, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, who's the they referring to? It's referring to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. In the same way, the same way as what? In the same way as these angels. Well, how do you know he's referring to the angels there and not to Sodom and Gomorrah when he says just as, as these? Because in the Greek, it can't be anything different. It has the same case. It has the same gender. It, ha it has to refer to the angels. So what's he saying? I mean, to sum it up, in verse 6, it's saying that these angels, in verse 6, compared to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. They, in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah, as these angels, <coughs> what they do, they indulged in, some translations read, gross immorality. Or uh, it says in the, uh, the ESV, it says sexual immorality. They indulged in gross immorality or sexual immorality and went after strange flesh. Now remember, Sodom and Gomorrah actually follows, as far as the standpoint of time, Sodom and Gomorrah follows what these angels did. That's why he's saying, just like, just he's referring back to that. Uh, I said this is a difficult passage, so hang in there. Now according to this text, <coughs> previous to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, where did Sodom and Gomorrah, where do we find that in the Bible? We find that in Genesis right, 18 and 19. It describes all, those, all the stuff that went on there. Well, somewhere before that, these angels 
did a similar thing that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It comes after, Sodom and Gomorrah comes after whatever these angels did. And so take your Bibles and turn, because we're going to show you what the angels did. Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And remember, Jude is reminding them that, you know what, as a result of embracing sin within the, the church, you're getting very close to judgment. You're getting, God judges things like that. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to, to this, and he's giving them illustrations. First, of Israel and their apostasy, but now of these angels. He's saying, hey, they were even judged. And so according to Jude, these angels indulged in sexual immorality and they pursued, pursued unnatural desires or strange flesh, as some translations read. The word unnatural or strange flesh means something of a different kind. That's what it means, something of a different kind. The, these angels that came down to earth, they weren't after other angels. That doesn't fit the text. They were after flesh that was not their own. Um, they were after people that were not like them. That's the point of why this all happened. And I, I, I believe it's clearly identified in Genesis chapter 6. So it's connected here with the sin of these people called the sons of God in Genesis 6. So when we get to Genesis 6, Genesis 5 is basically just what? It's, it's, it's clearly just a, a gene, genealogy. All the way from Adam, all the way down to Noah. That's what chapter 5 is. And then chapter 6 starts like this. Look at verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. Okay, so you have people beginning to multiply, and they have daughters. It says, verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. Well, stop right there. We have to identify who the sons of God are. Who are the sons of God? And this is where it gets dicey because people come up with all kinds of things. I think the Bible describes who the sons of God are itself. For instance, some people say, well, the sons of God are believers. Kind of makes sense. Um, but it doesn't fit the context. Because is that saying that the believers saw the sons or the daughters of men are beautiful, but the unbelievers don't see women as beautiful? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit. Because many unbelievers look at women and go, wow, they're beautiful, as well as believers. What's the point to that? And it says they took wives. Does that mean only believers took wives and unbelievers didn't? That doesn't make any sense. The other argument that people make is simply that it refers to the godly line of the Messiah. They say, well, it's through the line of Seth. And you remember your Old Testament, right? Um, Cain and Abel. Abel gets killed. Cain's just a bad dude. And then Seth comes along, and, and then men begin to call on the name of the Lord. And so they say, well, this is the godly line of Seth. But that still doesn't make any sense, given the context. And why would you refer to that? Um, what's the point of it? So I don't think it's referring to believers in Genesis 6. I don't think the sons of God refers to believers. As a matter of fact, when you look in the Old Testament, the way it's used in the Old Testament in general, um, the phrase 
the sons of God throughout the Old Testament is used of who? Angels. Almost always it's used of angels. Now, that's not true in the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, we're called sons of God, we're called children of God. That refers to Christians. But in the Old Testament, sons of God primarily refers to angelic beings. So let's suppose for a moment the sons of God who are angels saw the daughters of men and they saw that they were beautiful. Um, the angels were up in heaven looking down upon a fleshly woman and they're going, whoa, not bad. They desire that. And the angels are flying around. They're doing what God told them to do. And they say, well, we've never experienced anything like this. Maybe we'll just walk away from our responsibility in heaven and go down there and, and see what this is like. So it says they came down, they took wives for themselves. And you say, well, how would they do that? You just said that angels are spirit beings. That doesn't make any sense. How would a spirit have relations with a human being, with a fleshly human being? It's very simple because in the, if you study the New Testament, you'll discover that these angelic beings have the, the capacity to inhabit or we call it possess, right, a human body. When you talk about demon possession, that's what you're talking about. And that was true even during the time of our Lord throughout the New Testament. What's a demon? A demon is a what? A fallen angel. Okay, there's a connection here. So these angels, these, these spirit beings can inhabit the body of, of men, and as a result... They tried to experience the relationship that men and women have in their fleshly bodies that they were enjoying on earth that the angels never experienced. They wanted to experience that. That's really the only clear-cut explanation of what Jude is referring to because the Bible says those angels are just like Sodom and Gomorrah because they went after strange flesh. Um, that's flesh of a different kind something that they shouldn't do. Um, and the other reason, I, I don't think it refers to believers, um, it'd be a very strange context if it did because God would be actually condemning the marriage of believers. I mean, what's wrong with a, if it was actually talking about a believer here and not an angel, what's wrong with a believer looking at a woman and getting married to another believer? There'd be nothing wrong with that. God wouldn't criticize that. But down through this passage, you learn, look at down in verse 3 of, of chapter 6 of Genesis. It says, they took wives as they chose. And then it says, then the Lord said, here's the Lord's result, his reaction to this. It wasn't good. He said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And then he talks about the Nephilim and so forth and so on. But it appears that something is already wrong with what has been said in verse 2. And as we learn later on down in verse 5, it says the Lord saw that the what? The wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was, look, he even regrets. He says, I'm sorry I even made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And he's going to blot them out. This was all due to this demon activity that was very powerful that it happened. Now, just as the Bible predicts, it will be true 
when God brings his final judgments and destroys the earth by fire. That will happen. Just like he destroyed the earth by what? A flood. After this demonic activity happened. When they were involved in the affairs of men. It caused them to do very wicked deeds and lots of immorality. I mean, probably worse than even what we see today, if you can believe that. And as a result, God brought a flood and he wiped everybody out. Except Noah and his family. Look at what it says down in verse 11 and 12 of Genesis 6. Now the earth was corrupting God's sight. This was the result. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The end of all flesh has come, says the Lord. And I think what I believe is teaching here is that these angels committed some kind of immorality by inhabiting the bodies of men to have relationships with these women on earth. It's the only thing that really makes sense. I mean, to to come up with another thing, you're going to have to jump through a lot of hoops. They left their estate in heaven, and they came down here. And the whole point, by way of application, remember Jude, he's using this as a warning to Christians. It seems very extreme, but this is how serious he is about it. It's it's very easy to make that kind of a, a decision to go after what the earth offers, is it not? We all do it all the time. We look around the earth and we say, well, it's kind of nice. Got a nice job, got a nice house, got a nice family. I enjoy the pleasures here. I've even heard Christians say, boy, I can't wait till the Lord comes back. But I just want to see my grandbabies first. Really? I mean, I get what they're saying, right? I'm not cold-hearted about that. But are you saying that if, if Jesus was calling you home, and your children didn't have children yet, you say, no, I'm not going to go. I don't, that, that just seems crazy. But it comes out of our humanness, right? I mean, there's, I mean we understand that. But see, this is what, what this is warning against. It's saying, hey, don't get too comfortable with the earth. The earth offers you a lot of pleasures. It offers you a lot of blessings and things like that. But, but don't prefer the earth like these angels did. Rather, than heaven and its responsibilities. That was their problem. They got their priorities all messed up. And so look at the destiny of these angels to show you how serious this is. Okay, not just the description, but on the back of your outline there, the destiny of these angels. Um, Let's be clear here as to what God says. These are unbelievers. I, I don't believe there's any question about that. These angels can never be saved. The angelic host can never be saved. It doesn't work that way for them. But let's just be clear what God's word says. These are unbelievers, and I want to look at their destiny. First of all, as to their present condition. Where are these angels right now? Well, it tells us. It it, it says that they are are basically being held. Um, Back to Jude. It tells us that, that God put them in chains. It says in verse 6, But left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
He's kept them in eternal chains. What's true of them? Well, first of all, their, their present condition of these angels is that they're kept in eternal bonds under darkness. Well, what does that mean? Um, first of all, when you think of fallen angels, are all fallen angels in chains? Clearly not, right? I mean, they're running around. They're causing all the hassle, all these demons causing all these problems on earth. That's, but there's somewhere, there's this... Um, they're not all in chains, but there is a group of angels that are in chains because it tells us right there. And it's, they're in eternal chains. They've been limited by God from any other activity on heaven or earth because of something they did in the past, which I believe is found in Genesis 6, before God brought the universal flood. And these angels are an example to us. It tells us that, according to Jude, Jude a warning to us. Um, Look at what it says down at verse 7 there. It says they serve as an example. Okay, and we're going to talk about that. They serve as an example. Turn over to 2 Peter. A couple books there to your left. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. The, The point here is that God will not tolerate sin among these angels. He's definitely not going to tolerate sin among believers, especially, or any man for that matter. Um, Now remember, if you want to read a a corollary passage to Jude, just pick up 2 Peter chapter 2 and read that. It's it's almost identical. A couple different illustrations Peter gives, but it's almost identical passage. It's a parallel passage. And um, 2 Peter, verse 4 of chapter 2 says this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, well, what angels is he talking about? Well, the only angels we understand are, are the ones that are there in Genesis 6, but cast them into hell because all fallen angels sin, right? But they're not all in hell yet. They're roaming around, but some of them are in hell. So he, he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment kept in eternal chains. Um, they're, they're kept in a place, hell there, the word that we see in our Bible, hell is Tartarus in the Greek. Tartarus. It's a, it's, a, it's a certain place, a lower compartment, theologians tell us, of that awful place that's called hell. Somewhere in hell's regions are a group of angels who've sinned in the past, And now they're in bondage and in darkness. It clearly says that. Well, what about their condemnation? What's going to happen to them as to their condemnation? Um, The Bible says in verse 6, He has kept them in eternal chains until under gloomy darkness until, what? The day of the great, the judgment of the great day. The Bible says He's got them in chains. He's got them waiting for judgment. That's where these angels who committed this, these acts in, in Genesis 6 and the ones that Jude is referring to, I believe, uh, according to the Bible, he's got them in this compartment waiting for judgment. And according to Jude, verse 6, they're waiting for judgment of that great day. You say, well, who's going to judge them? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. 
Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. He says, do you not know, he's talking to believers, that we are to what? judge angels as believers. We will judge angels. It's kind of an interesting point. So all that plays into Jude's message here. And I know that was a lot to go through, and you can probably go back through it, but I, I really believe that's what Jude is referring to here. I, I don't know what else he would be referring to. Because he gives us the apostasy of the Israelis, and then he gives the apostasy of the angels. And then in verse 7, he, he refers to the, the Gentiles and their apostasy. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's why I believe these angels that are referred to here are not a code name for believers or in, back in Genesis. They're, they're actual angels, just like, he, like they say. And so he gives this example of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. These angels sinned in a similar manner or a similar fashion, you could say, to uh, the way that Sodom and Gomorrah and those who dwelt there sinned. Uh, it points to the nature of their sin. First point here. It says they indulged in, in what kind of immorality? Sexual immorality. Uh, they were controlled, you could say, by sexual sin. And when you look at the nature of their sin, um, they were controlled by it. They, they were indulged in gross immorality. That means that they were controlled by it. Um, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 7. The word sexual immorality in the ESV it translates differently in different Bibles, but in, in our text, in the ESV, it says sexual immorality in verse 7. We get the word pornography from that word, porneia. But in this context, the word, the Greek word porneia has a little two-letter word in front of it, ek, which means out. So what it's really saying is that this little word in front of pornography, porneia, ek, porneia, is really how you would say it, is the idea that <clears throat> this is constantly flowing out of their life. It's, it's habitual. It's something that can't be stopped. This was the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a, a constant pattern of immorality. They couldn't stop it. They were absolutely controlled by immorality. In that context, bisexual sin. It, it literally means giving oneself completely to it. And, and as a result, it's now dominating your life. That was true, what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. The second thing about the nature of their sin here was that it's not only they were controlled, by, but they were corrupted. They were corrupted by a, a sexual deviation, you could say. That's why it says there in verse 7, they pursued what? Unnatural desire. Just like the angels in heaven pursued unnatural desires, something that wasn't them when they came to earth, in Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they pursued unnatural 
desires. And that's really, they went after strange flesh, one, one text says. That's where the word sodomy it refers to homosexual or lesbian activity. Not something that God has designed. It's a deviation from what God designed. That's what all sin is. I mean, God gives us many things to enjoy right in life. He gives us art. He gives us music. He gives us um, sexual desires. He gives us all those things to enjoy as his creation. And, and what does Satan do? He comes along and he makes a deviation of all those things. Right? I mean, you can listen to wonderful music that praises the Lord and you can work, listen to horrible music that praises Satan. Right? Um, you can eat wonderful tasting food, or you can indulge to the point of gluttony, which is a sin. I mean, everything Satan has copied. And here, it's, it's dealing with a, a sexual desire, and it's a deviation from what God originally designed. I mean, none of us would be here if God originally designed us to be homosexual. You understand? I mean, we couldn't populate. It wouldn't work. It just doesn't function. I don't care what the woke movement says today. You know, with men having babies and all kinds of weird stuff that they say. That's not the way God designed it. I mean, you just look at the anatomy. It, 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 it doesn't take a rocket science. Okay? So, you know, it, it sounds silly, but I mean, it's like, what are we talking about today? And you say, well, why do we have to even talk about this? Because the Bible talks about it. The Bible brings it up. I'd rather talk about something else, but this is where we're at, so... Remember, Jude is writing to Christians here, and he's making a very, very definitive point. He took basically the most extreme example out of the Old Testament, namely Sodom and Gomorrah, but he took it out for a reason. He's using this for a reason. Because what Jude knew in his day is also true today in our day. And the Holy Spirit knew that, you know what, just like it applied to Jude, this applies to us today. Um, Jude lived in a time of Rome and the sexual immorality in Rome was running rampant all over the place. And Jude knew what he was saying. He just didn't pull this out of the air. The Holy, he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He used these illustrations for a purpose. And I think his purpose is that he's, he's warning the Christians in this fellowship how easy it is to tolerate gross immorality and sexual deviation and still call yourself a Christian. Go back to Romans 1. Romans 1. Because this is, <laughs> it's kind of important that we understand this. Romans 1. And we can look at verse 26 and 27. Because we have to get a clear understanding of what God says about sexual relationships and what sexual deviation is you know we have people telling us today well no they're born that way and it's okay and you know you can be a christian to be a homosexual and you know it's okay it's no problem you know as a matter of fact you're rude if you don't believe that you're intolerant if you don't believe that but i want you to understand as we read these verses in 26 and 27 what god really says about this but i also want you to understand that there's a principle here that we have to apply as well and that principle is one of love and forgiveness. No matter what sexual sins 
are in the, in the lives of anybody. Uh, no one has ever, let me say it this way, no one has ever sinned a sin that Jesus cannot pay for. No one. I don't care how evil, how horrible, whatever they did, it's impossible. No matter how awful maybe their background has been, maybe how awful your past has been, no, how awful your sins have been, no matter what, you have to understand the forgiveness of Christ is ultimate. It's fantastic. And God can clean up your life and he can change you. This is a message that the modern day people do not want to hear. That's why they make up the lie that, no, you're born this way. You're, they're not born this way. This is their choice to live in rebellion against what God says is true. And that seems harsh to people. I know that. But we have to understand that it's a message of, of forgiveness that comes from Christ. It's a message of love that comes from Christ. He wants to change this deviation. And now you can be thrown in jail for telling people and counseling people, no, we're, you can change. I mean, people are literally going to jail over this. It's crazy. And I've, I've dealt with people that say, you know, you don't understand, Pastor. I've got this pattern of sin in my life, and I'll never change, and it can't be changed. They really believe that, and they're defeated. And I really believe you can be changed by, by Christ's power, by his forgiveness. One guy told me one time, you know what, you don't understand, you know, this is something that I inherited. And I said, yeah, you inherited it. We all inherited it from Adam. I mean, you're nobody special. You know, and this is the, the other way out, right? Well, I'll just blame it on my parents and on my parents' parents. And you don't understand how I was raised, so that's why I'm this way and just leave me alone. No, it's wrong before the eyes of a holy God. Um, but praise God, it can be changed. You have to believe that. There's no sin, there's no sinful pattern in the world that man has ever created or designed that God cannot change. There may be some here tonight that would say with the church of Corinth, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. But, there's that word, extreme contrast, but you were washed, Paul says. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the way we all were before a holy God. But we were washed. Praise God, right? We are cleansed. We are sanctified. God loves to take people's lives that are really messed up and, and he saves them by his grace and his forgiveness and his love and all of a sudden their, their, their new lifestyle and their new pattern because he transforms their heart changes and what does he do? He makes them a trophy of his grace. He makes them a constant manifestation of the forgiveness of God. You know, and if you've known people or if you've been one of those people yourself where God has really changed you and you came out from a sordid, very sordid background and now you're a new person in Christ, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe if you're raised in a Christian home, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But I believe in, in love. I believe in forgiveness. But I want you to know as a church... And I want you to know as a body of people, 
the way I read the Bible, it tells me that we are not to tolerate these sins. We're not to tolerate it, even though it's politically incorrect. Even though we love people who are immersed in this lifestyle, we have to show them the love of Christ. They need the forgiveness of Christ. See, there's a balance between loving people and wanting to help them, okay, and to see a transformation and change for them. There's a balance here. No matter what their lifestyle is, you can put in the blank whatever you want. There's a balance between that and toleration and compromise of sin. You have to have a balance. I mean, we can't play Jesus at all times. It's impossible for us because we're in the flesh. Jesus wasn't. He, had, he was God. A little different scenario. While he was here on earth, he was in the flesh, clearly, but, I mean, he was God. There's a, there's a fine line here. There's a balance here between loving people and wanting to help them and compromise and toleration of their sin. Uh, he was the only one, really, if you think about it, that ever walked on earth that could truly, you hear this a lot, he's the only one that could truly hate sin and love the sinner. We say that a lot, but we can't do that. We can't do that perfectly like the Lord did. And sometimes we, we blur that line. We cross over that, that boundary. And we have to be very careful as believers when we do that. We don't want to blur those lines. Because, you know what, from what I read in Scripture, we aren't to hate sinners. That's not what our role is. We, we don't look at, at, at someone who's caught up in sin, I hate them because they're so... Un-. No. We should love them as Christ loves them. And we have to remember, that they are not the enemy. Okay, they are what? They are victims of the enemy. And we're fighting against the enemy. So we just have to remind ourselves of that. Um, no matter what they've done in their past, we have to say, you know what? God can change you. He's changed me. He's changed others. We've got to believe that. And we have to trust God to do that work through us because left in our own self, we're, we're going to mess it up. But we also have to be careful that in our believing that, that God can change them and, and trusting him to do that, to, to change their lives, we don't tolerate, we don't compromise with sinful practices. See, that it's a hard, hard issue, right? It's a difficult issue. Um, it's hard to do that. I mean, they thought, you know, I mean, I've talked to some people and, and got lambasted for certain views and things like that, and they, they, they make you out to be the worst person on the face of the earth because you said a little thing. And I know my heart. I mean, I, 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 you know, God knows my heart. I sleep well at night. Um, but because they didn't agree with their view, you know, they lambast you for it. Um, but look at what it says in verse 26 and 27 of Romans 1. Because this really shows us what God's view of all this is. And that's what, it shouldn't be what the society thinks. It shouldn't be what the government thinks. That's irrelevant. What does God say about this? Well, look at what it says in verse 6. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
Once again, it's a deviation of what God designed the body to do. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. By the way, notice that anyone who goes after this sexual deviation experience, the results and consequence in their own life, um, plus even what verse 32 says, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. This is what God, this is how serious this is before a holy God. It doesn't mean we go out and kill homosexuals. I'm not saying that, but this is God's perspective. Because it's a deviation. It's something like when these angels came down, they caused a problem in, in what was normal. And God had to wipe the whole thing out and basically start over. And this is what he, he's saying here. And then he says, um, he says in verse 32, that they, uh, though they know that God, they, then he says that they not only do them, do these things, unnatural things, these sinful practices, but what do they do? They give approval to those who practice them. And we see this going on even within the church. You see people trying to tolerate certain sins that God says, do not tolerate this. Well, you know, and they start to believe all the psychobabble that they're giving them. If you continue in a sexual pattern like this, this deviation, without repentance, without trusting the forgiveness of Christ, you're headed for a place God calls hell. That's what it says. No question about it. I mean, somebody asked me one time, well, can you be a homosexual and go to heaven? Yes. The real question is, can you be a practicing homosexual and go to heaven? No. I would say no. If there's no repentance in your heart for something that God says no, it would be like if you were just constantly lying. You made a practice of lying. See, we focus on the sin, right? Because it's a hot-button issue. But it doesn't matter. Or if you're constantly stealing. If you do that as a way of life without any repentance, I don't think you're going to heaven. Because you're doing something that's contrary to God and his word. With intent and malice and continuity. So it's very important that we understand this uh, because it, it has a lot of consequences. And it says it over and over and over again throughout Scripture. God does not tolerate sin. He loves the sinner. He gave his son for their sin. And every person can be changed by the power of Christ if they'll simply turn to Christ. But we've got to be careful what we believe and in, in what we say about these things. So it, it points to the nature of this. And it brings you to the last thing here. It points to the necessity of punishment. The necessity of punishment. He uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example um, of what happens for people that just kind of leave what God tells them to do and just without any repentance or anything, as a way of life, continue to do the opposite. Uh, God exhibited, he, he used Sodom and Gomorrah as an example, it says. That's what it says in verse 7. Look at it in Jude, Jude 7. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The first reason is because the Bible declares it. That's what he says. They serve as an example. Um, 
Now, Sodom and Gomorrah experienced a, a temporal fire, right? It was, it was destroyed by God, by fire and brimstone. Those cities were destroyed back in Genesis chapter 19. But these angels, it's not a temporal fire they're dealing with. It's an eternal fire. So it's a grave consequences for these, these angels who, who left what God told them to do and did their own thing. That word, example, degma, in the, in the original language, it means, it means to uh, lie exposed. That's what that word means, example. To lie exposed. Sometimes in, in secular Greek it was used when a hostess in the Roman Empire would, would have guests over. And before the guests would come over, they would set all the food out on the table. And when the guests arrived, it was all lying exposed to the guest. It was all ready. Even though they hadn't eaten anything yet, it's all sitting right there. It's also used of a, um, a, a dead corpse that's laid out for burial. Okay, that word example, that's what that means. And so the word they, they use here is the same word translated for example or, or exhibited or lying exposed. What's that mean? For everyone to see it. For everyone to see it. Now, according to the Bible, what it says is Sodom and Gomorrah lie exposed, right, for all of us to see it. The question is how? How, how does it lie exposed? How does Sodom and Gomorrah lie exposed? Well, first of all, through the Bible, the Bible tells us the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We can see it exposed. We have their history. Jude says he's reminding us, he's writing to us to remind of some of these things in the Old Testament so we don't repeat them in the New Testament. That's kind of the idea here. Uh, to remember what God did to that city that gave themselves over to this immorality. And he uses it as a warning to these Christians. Don't tolerate these people who creep in and they maybe fellowship with you on Sunday, but they're living like the devil the rest of the week. Don't tolerate that. The Bible declares it, but the sight of Sodom and Gomorrah, just archaeologically, it demonstrates it. It's a demonstration to us. As a matter of fact, you can go over to Israel right now and you can go down to the, the southern edge of the Dead Sea, down near Petra, the, 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 the rock, uh, the city of, of Red, I think it's called. And, and it was, you can go down there and you can see, they don't know exactly where the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were, but they kind of have an idea of the approximate location. And it's down in that area of the Dead Sea, the southern end of the Dead Sea. Some think that maybe it was covered over by the Dead Sea. But what's weird is when you go down to that area and you look around, you know what all that land is covered with? It's covered with lava rock. It's covered with brimstone. All over. It's like in Hawaii when you go over there and you see the lava field. That's what it's like. And you go on a tour over there and you ask the guide, hey, well, where did all this, well, it must have been an Asian volcano. Wow, it doesn't look like there's any volcanoes around here. What are you talking about? You know, and then you bring up the Bible. Oh, you believe that. Well, there it is. It's lying exposed for everybody to see. God says it will be exhibited as an example of everlasting fire. It's a reminder to us of God's judgment that he doesn't tolerate sin, that he is a holy God. Yeah, there's love, there's forgiveness. But see, we have to understand that the real danger is not outside the church. This is Jude's message to these people. The real danger is from within. It's from within the church. 
And when we begin to sin in these areas, and all of a sudden we start to defend it and, and justify it, and we excuse it and say, well, it's okay. And that's the problem with the term carnal Christian, right? People use that as an excuse. Oh, brother so-and-so, you know, oh, he, he was drunk last week. Wow, he's a, you have to understand, he's a believer, but he's a carnal Christian. Oh, so they can sin and get away with it. It's an excuse. That's all it is. I mean, carnal basically means fleshly. Um, and so we need to be understanding in this area, but we also have to understand, you know what, if you're looking at your own Christian life and you have issues with sin and you lack power and you lack fruitfulness and you lack effect in witnessing and things like that, you might want to look at your own life and say, well, is there an area where something's crept in here that I need to stomp out? Because you're not going to get away with it. I mean, you, you may fool everybody. Your family, you may even fool yourself. But you never fool God, ever. And that's, that's why a lot of Christians today are being defeated. They're, they're being destroyed specifically in this area more than any other area. And, and Jude found it so necessary that he uses these extreme examples from the Old Testament that, that point to these Christians and say, hey, don't, don't just turn a blind eye to this stuff. You better be careful. You better be on the lookout because we've given you several examples of this, and we, we don't want you to end up in the same, the same state. Well, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's a lot to get through, but I pray it does. And uh, if you have any questions, you can come up and ask me afterwards. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these examples of your holiness, really, and our sometimes inability to relate because sometimes we want to compromise in areas that we shouldn't. And Lord, uh, it's hard. Like I said, I think Jesus is the only one that can, can love the sinner and hate sin perfectly. We, we don't do that very well. A lot of times we make judgments and, and sometimes we even forget that, well, there, that once was me. Once I walked in unbelief and I may not have done to the extent of the sin that we see here or there, or maybe I've done worse. It doesn't matter. One sin before a holy God, and you're, you're disqualified from heaven forever. And so, Lord, help us not to focus on the particular sins so much as, as our own hearts. And, uh, Lord, as believers, we want to be pure. We want to walk in a righteous way with you each and every day. And, Lord, if we're struggling in this area, any of us, Lord, I pray that we would bring it, first of all, to you, confess it to you, repent of that, and and get some accountability and, 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 and some assistance so that we can live a victorious Christian life. We're not meant to live a life that's defeated and, and um, discouraged. Lord, we're, we are your, your children. We are bought with, with the price of your son's sacrifice on Calvary. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us the church to, to, to fellowship and to grow in. Lord, we're so thankful for the many blessings that you give us as your children and lord help us not to lose sight of that and you just simply ask us to walk in righteousness before you we can't do that on our own we have to rely on your spirit to fill us and to do it for us each day lord if there's anyone here tonight who's yet to put their faith their trust in christ in christ alone i pray that they would understand that's the only hope outside of christ you're lost you're on your way to 
in eternal death, eternal hell forever. And we don't want anyone to experience that. And neither does God. God provided a way out through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you cry out to him tonight, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart that God will answer. And he will save you. He will transform you. He will break you out of that sinful habit or whatever it might be. And for the first time, you can experience victory in living for God in a righteous way. Father, we just pray now you bless our fellowship one with another. Uh, Take us safely home tonight in Jesus' precious name. Amen.